All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Your Brain on Science. You're here with me, Zarmeen, and today we'll be talking about psychedelics and synaptic plasticity. So let's get right into it. Hey guys, I hope everyone is doing well in this, the end of the month of November. I can't believe that the year is about to end. I feel like I've been busy every second of every day, but also simultaneously have like not completed a single thing. Does anyone else feel like that? It's quite possibly like the most miserable feeling ever. It's like you're drowning in quicksand, right? Time keeps passing by, but I'm not able to do anything. Anyway. <laughs> So anyway, um, today we're going to talk about a topic that's very near and dear to my own heart, and that is psychedelics and synaptic plasticity. Plasticity, synaptic plasticity. I'm sure you guys have been hearing that so much if you're you know, active in the psychedelic space. It's almost like a buzzword now, plasticity. Um, but what the hell does it actually mean? A lot of people don't actually know what it means. So today we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to break it down in terms of its functionality. So what plasticity does and what it's useful for, the actual biological process that, that occurs in the brain having to do with synaptic plasticity, and its intersection with psychedelics and psychedelic action. So let's start at the beginning, right? So what is synaptic plasticity? Synaptic plasticity is the idea that parts of our brain are constantly growing or pruning neuronal connections. So those are those connections between our brain cells. Plasticity is the reason that we're able to learn new things throughout our lifetime. You know, as growing adults, you're still able to learn new languages. You're still able to learn uh, your new boyfriend or girlfriend's name and what they like and what they don't like. Um, so a very real life example of this would actually be you are listening to this podcast episode, right? You are now hopefully learning things that you might have not known before. Um, and cells in your hippocampus and your cortex are going to become bigger and are going to form new connections, perhaps even give rise to new cells to account for this new information that you're learning. Um, and if tomorrow you wake up and the next day as well, and you call upon this information, you know, you're telling your friends about something you heard here, or you're telling your, your I don't know, your mom or whatever, these new connections are going to become stronger and are going to be more likely to stay there in the long term. And then it becomes easier over time to access this information because those connections are so much stronger than they used to be. But on the flip side, if after today, you literally never use this information again, then sometime down the line, this connection would be pruned because it wouldn't be efficient to take up space in your brain with information that you obviously don't need since you haven't ever called upon it. Um, so this growing and this pruning of connections is the bi-directional, so two-way nature of plasticity. And you know, this bi-directionality is something that a lot of people forget or don't really talk about in terms of this field and especially um, like psychedelics, but it is adaptive to get rid of things that you don't need, right? So think of that in the sense of plasticity as well. Plasticity could be forming new connections, making current connections stronger or pruning current connections or connections that are no longer efficient or serving you. 
So now I've given you a little bit about the functionality of plasticity, right? So this is the function that it serves. But how does it happen in the brain? Like, what is the actual biological process by which this is occurring? So for this, we're going to go a little bit neuroscience 101, but stick with me here um, because it will intuitively make sense. And if you guys are more visual learners in this, uh, in the adjoining blog post to this episode, I'll have a paper linked with a really nice figure that will allow you to sort of walk through everything I'm talking about a little bit visually. So if you want, you can pull that up and I think that would be great for you to follow along. So... We just talked about plasticity is a process by which functional connections between cells can become stronger and physical changes to the cell can happen, right? So physical changes such as the formation of new dendritic spines, which are tiny little processes that like bud off of the dendrites of an axon. Um, the synapse can become bigger. So the synapse is where the neurotransmitters are going to bind. That's where all the receptors live. Um, and you can have neurogenesis, which is the creation of new neurons. I've now identified two different types of plasticity that can occur. One is functional, right? So that's going to have something to do with the connections between cells. And two is structural. So physical changes to the neurons or the neuronal landscape or whatever ensemble that you're studying. So functional and structural. In today's episode, we are just going to talk about functional plasticity, but stick around for the next episode in this plasticity series. And Elena will go in depth about structural plasticity in the next episode. The process of synaptic plasticity is going to start and it's going to occur when some neurotransmitter is going to bind to some receptor on the postsynaptic neuron. Um, so let's take, for example, psychedelics. So we have psilocybin. It's going to bind at the postsynaptic 5-HT2A receptor, which is a G-protein coupled receptor. And what that means is that this receptor isn't going to open like a little channel and let stuff flow through when something binds. Rather, once this psilocybin binds on some binding site on the surface of this receptor, the part of the receptor that's inside the cell is actually going to mobilize proteins that will then go bind to other things inside the cell. So this isn't like a straw opening and letting things flow into the cell. Rather, something binds and then something on the inside mobilizes to go have int those intracellular effects in the neuron. So for psychedelics specifically, we get mobilization of the GQA subunit. And this has effects downstream producing various other proteins until eventually there's an effect at the level of gene transcription. So this is going to occur in the nucleus. This is where all your genes are going to live in the neuron. Um, and all of those proteins will eventually, well, some of those proteins will eventually go down to the level of gene transcription and affect the genes that are being transcribed and therefore expressed. So now gene transcription can be affected to induce the production of proteins like BDNF, TERC-B, and mTOR, which are called plasticity-associated genes. And these can have effects on structural plasticity and stability and cell stability and also connection stability. Gene transcription is also affected to induce the production of more receptors such as AMPA receptors, NMDA receptors, and glutamate receptors. And now if you guys know anything about neurotransmission, um, there's a neurotransmitter known as glutamate, and that's an excitatory neurotransmitter. That neurotransmitter is going to affect cells by increasing their, their cellular output, making them more active. And glutamate is going to uh, bind at AMPA receptors, NMDA receptors, and those glutamate receptors. So increasing the production of those receptors are going to cause them to insert into the membrane and give the cells more excitable properties, right? It makes sense if there's more excitable uh, 
receptors that are going to bind those excitable neurotransmitters, the cell might become more excitable. So this increases those functional uh, connections that a cell can make and probably make them a little bit more efficient, right? Because there's so many receptors. Gene transcription can also induce the production of corticotropin releasing factor and have effect on your glucocorticoid system. So things like stress um, and other hormonal, you know, output. So plasticity, as you can see, is a pretty complicated process, right? These long-term enduring changes function to make connections stronger, more stable, and make them more efficient. So what I've been talking about sounds like an adaptive process, right? These are good adaptive changes in response to whatever you're currently experiencing in your environment under normal conditions. Now, interestingly, in the case of psychiatric disorders, such as major depressive disorder, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, whatever it may be, synaptic plasticity is significantly decreased. And this change is global throughout the brain. So your cortex, subcortical areas, global decreases in plasticity. And I think we talked about this a little bit earlier in, in earlier episodes, um, but a behavioral output of this decreased plasticity would be um, increased cognitive inflexibility. So the inability to sort of break out of those depressive ruts and keep thinking in the same way and the same negative thought patterns. It's very, that's very characteristic of things like depression and anxiety because you get stuck in those patterns, right? You're cognitively inflexible. You're not able to think of things in a new way. And that's part of the symptoms of whatever psychiatric disorder it may be, right? So that is actually a behavioral manifestation of plasticity or I guess lack of plasticity. Now, in terms of psychedelics, we're finally getting there. <laughs> you guys have heard me talk about the neurotrophic hypothesis many, many times throughout this podcast. Um, now, the idea here is that we see that these drugs are so clearly and incredibly impactful in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. But what is the neural mechanism for this? We see that there's increased connections under the acute state via the changes in the DMN, right? The default mode network, which we talked about in the last episode at the neural circuitry level. At the cellular level, right, at the neuronal cellular level, what exactly is happening? Well, many researchers, including myself, posit that psychedelics are having this incredible therapeutic benefit through their actions as drugs that induce synaptic plasticity, and that is a neurotrophic hypothesis. So this is a great theory, but what's the evidence here? Like, what is the evidence to support it? Well, there are a couple of papers that look at the effects of psychedelics on synaptic plasticity in rodent models, right? So we're looking in rodent models because, first of all, the utility of it, it right, off the charts. It's easier to manipulate animals, um, and it's more ethical to do things like that. Um, and there's a few different ways that we can use these rodent models, right? So we're, before we dive in, let's look at how we are going to measure plasticity using these rodent models. Um, so we can have in vitro or in vivo studies using rodents or other animals as well. Uh, we, I'm specifically talking about rodent models, but you can have in vitro or in vivo with literally any model. So in vivo means be in behaving living animals and in vitro means in slices. So slices from little rodent brains, it's actually a really, really cool process. So you need to make sure that you're preserving the integrity of the tissue when you section it out, uh, because obviously it needs to be living tissue, right? So you extract the brain and you make slices like you would on a tiny little deli meat slicer. <laughs> it's pretty tough, but it's, it's such a cool process. Um, and then you take the slice over to a rig and make sure that it's bathed in a, in a ton 
of artificial cerebrospinal fluid. So it stays, you know, hydrated and, and alive. Um, then you can apply stimulation or record from the slice using electrodes in a ton of different ways. So now what I'm talking about and what I'm going to be talking about are primarily electrophysiological techniques. So electrophysiology uh, sort of exploits the electrical nature of cells to record from them and stimulate. So we pick up currents, um, sort of electrical flow from one synapse to the other. We can get some really, really good resolution with electrophysiology. And there's a ton of different techniques in there, but I, I won't get into all of that. But to probe for plasticity, there's a few different electrophysiological measures that we look for. Uh, so one of them is going to be sort of like basic cell characteristics. So is the cell more excitable now or is the cell less excitable or is the transmission of electrical signals happening quicker or more slowly now, um, which is going to tell us something about transmission speed, right? Another measure is something that's a little bit more clearly defined, and it's called LTP, or long-term potentiation. And if you guys are in the neuroscience field, you've definitely heard of LTP. LTP is a process by which we can induce and observe plasticity um, in a chosen population of cells. The idea here is that you apply stimulation at a very high frequency for a very, very short period of time, and then you see how those cells respond after. They should be highly potentiated and responding at a higher frequency or amplitude. So what's actually happening when we try to induce LTP is very similar to the process that I talked about above, like classical plasticity. Um, NMDA and AMPA receptors, which bind glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter, NMDA and AMPA receptors, once bound, are going to let in calcium, which is going to bind to intracellular vesicles that perhaps contain more receptors that are going to incorporate those receptors into the membrane, which sort of results in a, a broader, more stable synapse. And we also get effects at the level of gene transcription from all of that calcium influx. And that is what's going to make the process long-term potentiation because these transcriptional changes are going to maintain the cell's potentiation over the long term. So there's a form of LTP that is short-term and that's literally called short-term potentiation. Uh, and that's going to be where this potentiation is not sustained. And that's because the stimulation is not strong enough or long enough, or it's not given in the correct sort of pattern that it, it needs to be given in, or whatever. Um, but it's not enough to induce gene level changes. Those changes in gene transcription is really what's going to keep your plasticity lasting. And that's what you need to have it keep your plasticity lasting. So another measure of plasticity is going to be um, the level of transcribed genes or gene expression having to do with uh, plasticity associated genes. And we talked about some of those earlier, right? BDNF, mTORC, um, so on and so forth. Uh, so in this process of LTP, going coming back to this, in this process of LTP, the stimulation actually acts as some artificial activation process, right, in whatever population of cells that you're looking at. And this is going to allow us to clearly see changes having to do with plasticity. This long-term potentiation and short-term potentiation can actually be induced both in vivo and in vitro. And I actually do all of these uh, electrophysiology measurements that I just talked about in my mice in vivo. So that's very exciting. Um, and one thing that I'm quickly going to touch on because I talked about the bi-directional nature of plasticity is that there is also a such thing as long-term depression, LTD, where you make a synapse 
more depressed, right? Less likely to respond to any type of incoming um, activation or stimulation or whatever it may be. And it functions very similar. Uh, the stimulation that you give it is going to be a very different pattern. It's going to be at a different amplitude and a different uh, frequency pattern. Um, and that is going to cause changes in the opposite direction. Very useful and very, very interesting as well. So we've talked about some of the methods, um, but what is the evidence for psychedelics and synaptic plasticity? Uh, so I'm going to say here before we start out that there is a dearth of literature. Uh, this field is sort of ripe for the picking, and I am currently looking to desperately add to this field. I'm literally writing up a couple of papers now, but I can't talk to you guys about that data. So soon, I will talk to you about my work soon. <laughs> but there are a few papers uh, that talk about psychedelics and functional plasticity. One of the bigger papers that came out in 2018 in Cell by Lai et al., which will also be linked in the blog post, looked at both structural and functional measures. So now there's going to be a ton of data for structural plasticity, but we're, we won't talk about that today. That's going to be in the next episode. I will talk solely uh, functional plastic effect. So in this paper, they mentioned that they did whole cell voltage clamp recordings. So they took electrophysiological measurements of slices in vitro, right? Um, and they did this 24 hours after the animals that they took those slices from were treated with DMT. They found that spontaneous excitatory postsynaptic currents, EPSCs, were significantly increased in their frequency and amplitude as compared to control cells. The currents that were coming out of these cells, so the level of activation, right, were significantly higher in how many times these spontaneous currents happened and also in amplitude, so how strong these currents were, so frequency and amplitude. So the literature here, I will say, uh, is pretty sparse, right? Um, but for now, this is what we have. Like, I'll I'll hopefully add to, to the field in the way that I can. And I know Elena's doing some work behaviorally. Um, and there's a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of labs that are doing work just like this. So hopefully in the next few months, in the next coming years, we'll have much more to talk to talk about in terms of functional plasticity. But what we talked about is good evidence. And there is also a lot of other pieces of literature, specifically structurally, that, that are going to tell us, you know, there is good evidence for plasticity after psychedelic administration. But obviously, much more rigorous experimentation is uh, necessary. I also want to leave you guys with something to think about, right? So there's evidence that plasticity occurs after psychedelic administration. And there's this idea of a window, right? Because this plasticity isn't everlasting. You're not going to just be in a plastic state for the rest of your life after being given psychedelics, right? There's a there's a window where there's, you know, intense rearrangement of your connections and and increased plasticity. Um, and it's there's some evidence that it's sometime during or immediately after your experience because we the evidence that we're seeing with functional plasticity lasts up to 24 hours after um, psychedelic administration, right? So it's likely that there is a plastic window after administration. So my question is, my thought, my, I don't even know what it is, my ponderance, I want everyone to think about it. Is it likely that therapeutic benefit is arising as a result of this plasticity window opening and a combination of the participant now being able to consolidate that experience with their therapist? Or, you know, if you're by yourself, uh, by you sort of working through whatever was brought up for you, because to me, it makes sense that these drugs are going to 
you know, give you this window of plasticity, but you have to do something with it to benefit you, right? Or else the potential of these drugs as therapeutics might be diminished, or you might not have the outcomes that you're expecting or hoping for, or whatever it may be. And, you know, and maybe that's okay too, right? Not everyone is using these in a therapeutic context, and that is absolutely okay. So I don't know, that was just a little bit of a thought. <laughs> Let me know what you guys think. Um, if you guys have any ponderings or lingering questions, but this is what I have for you today. So with that, thanks for listening and sticking with me throughout this episode. Please follow and subscribe for updates. And please feel free to reach out with ideas, questions, proposals, honestly, really anything. Elena and I love hearing from you guys. Uh, so please reach out. <laughs> so until next week, you guys, see you later. Mm-hmm.